Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 12, To the Precipice. Up until this point, we've discussed the formation of the various alliances and crises leading to the First World War. As I said at the end of the last episode, I want to pull our focus back from the microcauses and instead focus on the political landscape of Europe on the eve of July 1914. We've been doing a lot of traveling in our narrative so far, from the dismissal of Otto von Bismarck, the standoff at Fashoda, the Boxer Rebellion, the Russo-Japanese War, to the recent Balkan Wars, it has been a whirlwind tour. Thankfully, the history of the Great War allows us this neat little pocket in which to stop our narrative and do a temperature check on the Great Powers. The summer of 1913 to July 1914 was a period of relative calm throughout Europe. There was no foreign crises or new alliances which threatened to topple the balance of power, so the European concert took a step back, counted all ten fingers, and felt pretty lucky that the Balkan Wars had managed to be contained. But of course, it was not as if time simply stopped. Things were continuing to happen, but at a more domestic level. So today, is going to be more of a scene set in order to help us have a better understanding of how Europe was feeling prior to the July crisis, which we will finally get to next episode. Although the crises we have discussed thus far led to a rather tense feeling in Europe, the much-feared Great Power War had been avoided. Conflicts had taken place, sure, but those conflicts were contained and never involved more than one power at a time. But it is important to remember that late 19th, early 20th century Europe was one in which military action was seen as an extension of state diplomacy. The writings of the great military theorist Karl von Clausewitz continued to have a major impact on decisions made at a higher level. Clausewitz, whose theories are endlessly debated, essentially argued that military action was a perfectly legal and justifiable act. In other words, nations reserved the right to declare war if they felt it was the best option to achieve their goals. But Clausewitz was not another aristocratic hawk. He went further and argued that by going to war, government should fully understand the consequences of such an affair. In his 1832 opus on war, he wrote that war is an act of human violence, pushed to its utmost bounds. Essentially, he was warning state leaders that military action was not something which should be taken lightly, because things happen which cannot be accounted for. Soldiers panic, economies are ruined, and freak accidents like slight weather changes can ruin an entire campaign something which Clausewitz coined as the fog of war. So by the early 20th century, war was not a question of morals or good versus bad, but whether pursuing conflict was in the best interest of the state. Now for a long time I struggled with this notion. I would argue that in today's world, war is commonly viewed with suspicion and disdain. We see it as a waste and generally do what we can to avoid it. But as my interest in the First World War grew, I came to understand that pre-1914 Europe simply did not see it that way. Of course, there were pacifists who argued that war was always a waste, but even the idea of being completely against any form of military action was just not a common belief. Even hardened pacifists like Bertrand Russell, who famously opposed Britain's entry into the war, defended the empire's imperial conquests of the early 20th century. Instances like the Boxer Uprisings, Fashoda or the Dogger Bank incident, all aroused support from military action in the general public, because those events were closely linked to the well-being of the empire. The tenets of social Darwinism, which argued that nations had to struggle to survive, was a powerful influence throughout European society. It was felt not just in Britain, but in France and Germany as well. Warfare, then, was a tool in which to improve the state, not something which could damage it. But as we talked about earlier, most conflicts were not among the great powers. Military adventures were all well and good if they were against an inferior opponent. 
the conquest of Africa, Russia's war with Japan, and the various conflicts against the Turks had all been met with enthusiasm. War was an adventure and a great source of national pride. Although Clausewitz died in 1832, his lessons were not lost on European statesmen. But the world had become a much different place. Industrialization had given way to new generation of weapons and tactics. The Napoleonic Wars were now a distant memory, and Clausewitz had come from the school of officers who believed in the honor and chivalry of warfare. In his day, battles were intimate affairs. Engagements were fought standing up and at close range. But as industrialization grew, so did changes in weaponry. The Wars of German Unification saw some of the earliest application of these new prototypes. Early bolt-action rifles like the French Chesapeake and more accurate artillery had resulted in battle lines being drawn further away. Killing zones can now be several hundred meters deep, which made the traditional style of warfare obsolete. Soldiers lined up in formation, as they were on Clausewitz Day, would have no chance against these new advanced weapons. You can of course point to famous examples of traditional warfare clashing with this new embodiment. The infamous charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War saw British cavalry decimated by Russian artillery. Or you can just look at the American Civil War from 1861 to 65, which began as a European-style conflict, but soon resembled the killing fields of the First World War. Trenches, artillery, and charges at a mass scale, which resulted in over 600,000 casualties. But European observers had failed to pick up on these lessons. In their minds, these wars did not apply to what their vision was of honorable combat. The Crimean War was not fought in France or Germany, and that had been over for nearly 60 years by 1914. In the U.S. Civil War, well, they just ignored that pretty much entirely. Observers were shocked at the loss of life, but at the end of the day, could take comfort in the fact that it was an American war, fought on American soil thousands of kilometers from Europe. It was not European war, and many felt that the 600,000 dead was a sure sign that the Americans had no idea how to fight honorably. It was a snobbery which would haunt them in later years. One of my favorite examples which highlights the changing nature of warfare came during the 1866 war between Prussia and Austria. Austrian troops were equipped with traditional muzzle-loaded muskets and were expecting a conflict along the regular lines of engagement. But they were shocked when they discovered that Prussian troops, armed with breech-loading rifles, could discharge their weapons from the prone position. Like I said before, battles were always fought standing up, and being able to fight while on your stomach went against centuries of military dogma. It sounds ridiculous that something so small could have such a profound influence, but it was a game-changer, as Austrian troops were not trained to shoot at such small targets. An unknown Austrian officer was said to claim that the Prussians must have sent their women out to fight, because no honorable opponent would use such a cowardly move. But industrialization had another effect which should not be understated, and that was the formation of the working class. As more people migrated into city centers, it created a broader sense of community and belonging. People were now living in closer proximity than they were just a few decades prior, and although Italy and Austria-Hungary remained largely rural, urban populations in Britain and Germany skyrocketed. As a result of this, public participation in politics in the form of trade unions and pressure groups were a growing phenomenon. The Pan-German League and the National Service League in Britain became influential organizations, whose members consisted of both working schmucks to senior members of government. These groups considered themselves protectors of national manhood, and argued that military service was compulsory in order to ensure the moral fiber of the nation. This argument became more powerful as time went on, and with the naval race continuing to raise tensions between Britain and Germany, more people were rallying to their call. For the first time in a long time, the public were playing an active role in the nation, 
They were no longer spread out over kilometers of farmland, but were coming together to form large communities. Between 1880 and 1900, Britain's population went from 31 to 41 million, Germany's from 41 to 56, and Russia's from 73 to over 100 million. People were beginning to understand what it meant to be British, or what it meant to be German. Loyalties were now tied in with the state, and not just to their local province or county. It was a slow process and was by no means complete by 1914, but the die had been cast, and Europe was migrating in that direction. As parents found work in factories, their children went to school, and the result was the gradual increase in public literacy. Expendable income was spent on entertainment in order to escape the dull city life. One of the newest and most popular was the genre of invasion literature. The Invasion of 1910, a book by William Le Queux, was a sensation across Britain. Using the backdrop of the English-German naval race, Le Queux's book chronicled a fictional tale of a German invasion of the British home island. Like Orson Welles's famous War of the Worlds broadcast in the 1930s, the invasion terrified local Britons and further pressed the issue of preparing for war against Germany. And in Germany, the feeling was mutual. Now I've already talked at length about the fear of encirclement, which was the raven of the German high command. But on the lead up to the Great War, Germany remained landlocked and surrounded by potential enemies: Russia to the east, France to the west, and with Italy's non-committal attitude following their war with the Turks, meant that Germany's southern flank was now in a precarious position. In 1907, on the heels of von Tirpitz's decision to initiate a dreadnought program, German construction firms had begun to undertake a major project, which not only pissed the British off, but might also give you flashbacks to your high school history days. The Kiel Canal, which ran through the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, was in the process of being widened in order to accommodate the German Navy's new battle fleets. To the British, this meant only one thing: German warships can now sail from the North to Baltic Sea with ease, and that the home islands were now at a greater risk of attack. Having German vessels in the Baltic was one thing, but the North Sea funnels directly into the English Channel. The main British concern was not the risk of a showdown with the German Navy. But the ability of the Germans to harass and disrupt their merchant shipping, as an island power, Britain had limited natural resources, so it relied greatly on its colonial holdings to provide raw materials. The appearance of the dreadnought had effectively made all pre-existing navies obsolete, and so the British Admiralty were trying to play catch-up to not only secure the home islands but its overseas empire as well. But a strong German naval presence in their backyard was a threat which could result in having to recall squadrons from its bases in the Far East. Weakening Britain's international presence. Essentially, it was a delicate balancing act, and due to London's unwillingness to enter a military alliance, meant that it could not count on Russian or French navies for support. It would take until August 1914 for them to realize they could not do it alone. Although this looks like a strong indication that Wilhelm was purposely rubbing shoulders with the Brits, there were individuals within Germany who felt the Kaiser was not doing enough. In 1912, a book entitled "Germany in the Next War" by Friedrich von Bernardi was a bestseller across the country. Bernardi was a member of Alfred von Schlieffen's command staff and was one of many who argued that Germany's geographic situation required a doctrine of preventive strike. Von Schlieffen, of course, being the much-credited architect of the infamous Schlieffen Plan, which we will get to in the next couple of episodes. But unlike Schlieffen, Bernardi was a die-hard hawk who argued that peace was a state of depravity. In that a leader's greatness was measured by his willingness to attack his enemies without certainty of success. Historians like Brian Bond and Gerard Reiter have coined this philosophy the "plunge into the bath of steel," which basically means strike first and ask questions later. So much for Clausewitz and his fog of war theory. Bernardi's argument was quite radical for the time, 
and would, in the end, cost him his job. But his book struck a chord among the general public. It became a bestseller, and public opinion began to turn on Wilhelm. Led by conservative nationalist groups like the Pan-German League, the civilian governments in the Reichstag began to pressure Wilhelm to prepare for an eventual showdown with the Entente. The general feeling was that Wilhelm had missed the opportunity to declare war during the Moroccan and Balkan disputes, and by doing so had made Germany look weak. Whispers that the Entente was becoming stronger, and slowly crushing Germany in a ring of steel became household language. In his defense, although Kaiser Wilhelm was a bit of a nut, he was not a fire-breathing warmonger. He liked to make grand speeches about the struggle of the German people, and fancied himself a great military leader, but as far as I can tell, the idea of actually fighting a general war scared him senseless. On the eve of the Great War, his command staff was made up of cautionary leaders. Tirpitz did not like how a shiny new fleet was stacking up to the British Navy, and the new commander-in-chief of the army, Helmuth von Moltke the Younger, appointed in 1906 after Schlieffen's retirement, generally advised against military action. Both men had been handpicked by the Kaiser himself, which gave them an influential voice within his inner circle. But one of the Kaiser's key weaknesses was his sensitivity to public opinion. Unlike Bismarck, who by and large ignored the civilian representatives, Wilhelm fancied himself a champion of the working class, and took great care to be up to date on what the German people were saying. He wanted to be liked, and not become one of the stuffy aristocrats from Bismarck's day. So on December 8, 1912, Wilhelm called an emergency meeting of his top military advisors. In the meeting, which neither the Chancellor nor Foreign Minister attended, Wilhelm and his advisors discussed the possibility of war, and what their plan was going to be in the event of that happening. While the men agreed that a war with France or Russia could be just one Austrian Archduke away, they could not agree on a time frame for it to take place. Turpitz argued his fleet was not ready yet, while Moltke felt that the logistics of getting the army mobilized still needed ironing out. What the meeting did produce was an agreement that the German public should be readied in the case of heightened hostilities. National presses soon began to run stories that France and Britain had secretly entered a military alliance, and that Russia and Serbia were planning to attack Austria-Hungary in the south. But there was an underlying truth to all this. Russia and France had recommitted themselves to their military alliance of 1894. In Paris, Raymond Poincaré, who we met last episode, had learned through the two Moroccan disputes that Germany would continually bully France unless it had firm commitments from its allies, which he helped achieve by increasing French loans to Russian railway construction. In 1913, Poincaré's government also passed the Three Years' Law, which bumped compulsory military service and allowed the Ministry of War to mobilize roughly 700,000 troops in response to a German threat. The Russians, for their part, were eager to help France following their own spat with the Germans in November of 1913. That autumn, the Turks appointed a German officer named Lehman von Sanders to command the city garrison in Constantinople. This triggered serious alarm in Russia, as they believed Berlin was secretly trying to impose their influence in the much-weakened Ottoman Empire. Although the Saunders affair is a footnote in the lead-up to the Great War, it effectively ended German-Russian cooperation towards the Ottomans which encouraged St. Petersburg to recommit its alliance with the French. But let's turn back to the Kaiser's military meeting for a second. What is most troubling is how the German military staff agreed that war was a possibility, and many historians have argued that the meeting represents the moment when the Germans deliberately planned the war which would begin in August 1914. After all, they did agree that war was going to happen, it was just a matter of when. In order for German forces to prepare and secure funding from the Reichstag, Wilhelm and his advisors agreed on an 18-month timetable. I'll say that again, 18 months. 
If you do the math, that lines us right smack in the summer of 1914. So in the 1950s and 60s, a German historian named Fritz Fischer published a series of books in which he argued that Germany was solely responsible for the First World War, and points to the December 1912 meeting as his primary evidence. After all, the timing is just a little too convenient. Fischer's work was a bombshell in the historiography, because most Germans continued to believe that they fought the war because encirclement had forced them to do so. And keep in mind, Fischer's argument came in the backdrop of a post-Hitler Germany, where national history was an incredibly sensitive subject. While Fischer's theories have been widely criticized, they have yet to be disproven, largely due to the limited sources we have from the Kaiser's 1912 meeting. But I tend to believe that Fischer oversimplifies the situation in pre-1914 Europe. There were so many moving parts leading up to the First World War that it makes pinning the blame on any one particular nation almost impossible. And I believe that trying to find a guilty party is not the answer to the question of how or why the war began. Does blaming Germany simply absolve every other nation which played a part? I certainly hope not. Maybe if the Germans declared war first, that might be a viable argument. But they weren't. And to believe that they had planned it all takes away from the real lessons which can be learned here. There is no simple answer to how the First World War began, which is why the debate about its origins continues after a century and does not appear to be slowing down anytime soon. You might be disappointed in hearing this, but I cannot provide all the answers. But I do hope to provide enough information which we can all gain a better understanding of why history unfolded the way it did. The political context of the great powers, the various crises which had almost brought a war but didn't, all play a major part. This was my reasoning to begin our discussion way back in 1890, and why it had taken us 12 episodes to get to July 1914, because focusing on the summer of 1914 exclusively simply does not do enough. So in the next episode, when we talk about the fallout from Ferdinand's assassination, it is important to keep in mind that nothing happened in a vacuum. The leaders assessed the situation based on their own past experiences. But unfortunately, they did not know that the war which followed would dwarf even the Napoleonic conflicts. World history was about to change, and it all began on a sunny afternoon in Sarajevo. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. You can also contact on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.